So, you're still here after the first day. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes the first day can be a little bit arduous, a little bit fatiguing. Sometimes it's not. Nothing's always one way. But tonight I want to talk about um, sort of the essence, the attitude we need to support our practice, really, in a way, the most important aspect, I think, of our whole meditation practice is not the technique or what's happening, but it's the attitude supported by wise discernment, supported by right understanding, with which we do our meditation practice, with which we live our life. So it's really right attitude and wise discernment. There's a a Tibetan saying that everything rests on the tip of motivation. So rather than looking towards external results, experience, what's happening, or how we like what's happening, or what we think should be happening, or what we want to be happening, the essence is really in the motivation in the attitude. And certainly, we mentioned it just briefly uh, last night, a sense for each of us in our life, in our spiritual path, and in our meditation practice here, a sense of uh, internal connection with um, our deepest motivation, with why we're doing it, with our intention, is really essential. I mean, otherwise you're not going to get through a day, you're not going to get through a sitting, never mind nine days, never mind our life, you know. Sure, when things are going easy, it's fine, but when things get difficult or not the way we like them or we can kind of confused, then to, rather than to fight with what's happening, to turn our attention back inward and reconnect with the sincerity of our motivation is really what can give us the, the courage, the confidence, the trust, really to just be here for the next breath, to be here for the next step. And we realign with our sincerity, with our intention, when things are difficult, when things are good also. So part of what I want to talk about is the wise attitude, sincere motivation, but also that by itself, that might get us going, that might get us here, that might keep us going, but it's not enough in isolation. Because with the most sincere motivation, intention in the world, if we don't have the right information, if we don't understand accurately, we can really be meaning to do good for ourselves and others and just not possessing accurate information We basically don't know what the heck we're doing. We get ourselves in all kinds of messes. So the wise intention attitude needs to be supported by wise discernment, by clear understanding, having the right information. This is just for beginning the practice. It's just kind of the the overview I want to talk about tonight. So... With the best will in the world, if we don't understand accurately, our choices may not serve us well, even if we're meaning the choice 
to be good for ourselves, good for others, to be for our own happiness. The Dalai Lama said once that the purpose of our spiritual practice is to fulfill our desire for happiness, for peace, and that we are all equal in wishing to be happy, to be free of our suffering, and I believe, he says, that we all share the right and the potential to fulfill this aspiration. So, I mean, that makes sense to me. Of course, I practice to be more happy, whether it's the meditation practice, whether it's how I live my life, and that we all share in that aspiration and the potential to be happy. But this is the rub now. This here is the nub. Without accurate information, the things we do, the choices we might make in our sincere desire to be happy could be the very habits, the very way we look at the life can be the things that keep us spinning in confusion and suffering without wise understanding, hence why we practice. You can see, see this everywhere. For example, I read a couple of years ago, I think, in a newspaper about an opinion poll that was done in Russia in the early 1990s. So it was a few years after the, the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union. As you know, Russia has been really in quite difficult circumstances, politically, economically. Life is hard for people. So this poll, um, I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but one of the questions was, if Stalin was running for president, would people vote for him? Now, and now by this point that this poll was done, the, remember Stalin basically was responsible for the murder of 20 million Russians in the gulag. And this was no longer a secret by the time this poll was taken. Before that, people didn't really know, but it was, it was out in public. And so one of the questions was, would people vote for Stalin? And I think it was 19 or 20 percent of people said, yes, they would vote for Stalin if he were running for president. And another hefty percentage, over 20 percent, said they weren't sure, but they might. Because basically they were wanting some kind of security, the sense that, you know, who cares if he killed 20 million people, my life might be more secure. You know, some sense of going for what we think will make us happy, you know, comfort or ease or whatever it might be. Okay, that's a little bit of an extreme example. But in a way, it's, it's what the Buddha is said to have seen when he first awakened under the Bodhi tree, you know, at he, when he came to his full understanding of the causes of our suffering, and how we can live, how we can relate to life through understanding, through wise understanding, in a way that allows us to be free from dis-ease, dissatisfaction, confusion. And after he realized this, and he saw that that's possible for all of us, but he also thought, you know, it's so much trouble, people aren't going to really get it. And it would be so much really 
dukkha for me, basically, suffering for me, discomfort for me, to be constantly trying to explain this to people and they're not going to get it. So he was, it's said in the, in the suttas, in the text, that he was inclined not to teach, not to share, because he thought, you know, it's just, it's subtle and people won't get it. But luckily, he was moved by compassion. It said that he could sur- read people's minds and survey the world of human beings and other beings with his his um, psychic powers and see people's minds. And what he saw moved him to compassion to teach. And what he saw was just this, what the Dalai Lama said, that everyone wants to be happy. That the choices we all make in our lives are on some way, twisted or otherwise, coming out of our motivation to be happy. But because we don't understand accurately, because we're trapped in habits of mind that we don't recognize, that drive our choices, that in the choices we make in our desire to be happy are the very things that keep us spinning in confusion, in delusion, in this sense of dissatisfaction and things just not working. And this is said that this moved the Buddha to compassion, you know, to share what he had recognized. So with the best will in the world, without the right information, we fall back into these habits of mind. They're not bad. It's not like we're saying this is bad and you should change and do the right thing. It's just that they don't work just in terms of our own happiness, in terms of bringing ease and compassion and comfort to the world. These habits don't work. So what habits do I mean? Very basic. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. You know who Bhikkhu Bodhi is? He's an American, uh, he's an American from Brooklyn, really, who's been a Theravada Buddhist monk for many, many years in Sri Lanka, and now he's living back in the States And at this point, he's probably one of the two foremost translators into English of the Buddhist text from Pali. So this is one thing he he said. Remember that the Buddha's teachings goes against the current of our habitual assumptions and attitudes. Most of our habits revolve around the desire to enjoy pleasure, to avoid pain, and to preserve the illusion that the universe centers around our individual self. These are the habits I'm talking about. I'm going to read it again. Most of our habits, and these are our mental habits, how we view our world and what guides our choices, revolve around the desire to enjoy pleasure, to avoid pain, and to preserve the illusion that the universe centers around our individual self. These are such, I mean, does that sound familiar? Can you relate to those? Now, I'm not saying that these are like evil. And it may be that they say, well, of course, of course I want to enjoy pleasure. Of course I want to avoid pain. Are we saying, is the Buddha saying, no, you should go out and look for pain and, you know, avoid pleasure at all costs? No. But these habits are so strong, and I'll talk more about it, that that comes to be the lens through which we evaluate experience. And that's what doesn't work. 
All pleasant experience comes to be good through that lens. Unpleasant comes to be bad. It leads to the reactions of wanting and aversion and that everything centers around me. I'll say more about that later. It seems obvious, but it really doesn't work. These become the lens through which we view things, through which we make decisions. We don't realize those habits. It's like wearing pink glasses, you know, and we don't see it. And then the choices we make don't necessarily work. I just read this uh, this week. It's a review of a book called How Doctors Think by a doctor called Jerome Groupman. So this is only the, re- the review. I haven't read the book. But I just this one little point that they're talking about, one of the things they're talking about is how many misdiagnoses there are, which, of course, you know, we're all human. And they said about 20% of the misdiagnoses are um, technical errors or wrong reading of a CT scan or something like that. But that a lot more, according to this book, of doctors' misdiagnoses are based on how the doctors are thinking and how, how they think colors the decisions and the diagnoses they make. So I'll just give you a couple of little examples like this, where he says, um, emotions can interfere. For example, a doctor may like a patient too much, so there's a sense of liking, of pleasant, that they can't consider a worst-case scenario. It'd be too unpleasant. Or they don't like a patient, and that patient's complaining, they just, you know, have a version to that patient's complaining, and they don't really listen to it. They don't really take it seriously. Interesting, huh? Or the kind of stereotypes that they have about age, about gender, about race, about socioeconomic class, whatever, that aren't even seen can color the diagnosis, and this I didn't read here, but I remember reading in the past how for a long time a lot of women's heart disease and heart attacks were misdiagnosed and overlooked because the common thinking was, you know, men are the ones who are stressed and have the heart attacks and women don't so much, and they were just overlooked. So these are just little examples, but you see, this is, this is how it works for us all the time when we don't recognize that these habits are present and operating. They're not bad. And we don't even have to get rid of them. We just learn to recognize that they're operating, to let our um, attention be more with awareness rather than so caught up in trying to feed these habits. The habits are the stream. Without recognizing them, we just jump. We just say it makes total sense. But with the willingness to just notice what's happening, we can kind of step outside of that happen and go, oh, maybe there's another way. little example, just the other day I was um, having to have a, 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 blood, a blood test read, so I was going to a medical lab with my, and to get my little specimen. And I w- went into the waiting room and there's another older man there. And the woman, one of the women who's working there, the door was open into where she was working. And she kind of came out and looked at us, and the man started to say something. I started to say, and she just kind of like slammed the door in our face, you know, went away. We're both like, whoa, you know, clearly not in a good mood. And 
it's interesting because I was just there. I didn't have any particular thing going on. But as soon as she did that, I noticed kind of irritation come up, aversions, like someone's going to act like that to me. Well, the appropriate response is to act like that back. You know, that seems to make sense. That's like something unpleasant happens right away. Something unpleasant goes back. The man who was there said, yeah, I didn't say anything. He said, to, very friendly to me, not angry, he goes, yeah, she's the one. Last time I was here, she really messed up my blood test. And she, and he went on and on and on. It was really interesting just to see that's sort of the way the world works. Something unpleasant happens, then we respond with more unpleasant, and it just keeps escalating. Then I thought, what could her, what could her, this is projection because I didn't like go have a discussion with her, but I thought, what could her day be like? She's working in a lab. She's basically examining blood specimens, urine specimens, and stool specimens. You know, that's her day. Probably when we come walking in, we're like another walking specimen, you know, walking in. That's probably how she sees us. And it could be easy to just move into this isn't so pleasant and your day isn't so pleasant and the people and, you know, and just kind of an aversion coloring everything. That's projection, right? Maybe she just had a bad morning at home before she came. But either way, that just seems reasonable to us. Something's unpleasant. We're going to be in a bad mood. That's normal. Then we just throw that bad mood onto someone else. But it is not inevitable it is not necessary. What, it is not that we have to live by these habits, that these habits of mind have to color our experience, have to define our life at all. And that's really what the meditation, what mindfulness can begin to help us see through, move out of, be free from. When we have the right information, we don't have to keep suffering from these habits of mind. So, well, another example, the first day of a retreat, not only the first day, but one of the reasons that a meditation retreat like this can be fatiguing, can be difficult, I mean, part of it is just the, the physical adjustment. We come from a really busy daily life, a lot of sensory input, a lot of doing, a lot of energy, maybe a lot of stress. We come here and sit down, and either we're really physically fatigued and exhausted, and it's just going to take a couple of days of rest, more rest to catch up. We're used to a lot more sensory stimulation and when from the outside, and when that's taken away, the mind doesn't know what to do with itself. Kind of checks out. You're not used to sitting and walking so long. We're used to spending the body in different ways. And so just on that level, it can be uncomfortable. But none of that has to be a problem. The level in which if it's a problem is the level of how the mind and heart is responding, reacting, to these particular circumstances. And that's the place that the meditation brings us to see that freedom is possible, as we said, here and now. Doesn't mean you have to get rid of this body. It doesn't mean it'll never hurt. It doesn't mean you have to get, never be sleepy again. It doesn't mean you have to like what's happening. That's a big secret you should know. We don't care if you like what's happening. And it doesn't matter one iota 
if you like what's happening. It doesn't matter even to you. In terms of the practice, it's not about getting better experience, and that's what's going to illumine us. That's what's going to allow us to open to freedom. It's not about that. It's about stepping out of believing, being driven by these habits, of evaluating everything by whether it's pleasant, whether it's unpleasant, what it means about me. Those habits are what keep us spinning in samsara, in the cycle of birth and death of suffering in a moment. Those are the habits that keep us confused. And so when you're sitting here today or next week or next year, and your back hurts a little bit, and you say, this is useless, I'm out of here, I can't do this anymore, that's getting caught in that pattern of, it's a little bit unpleasant, so it's bad. You know, when you're sitting and the body doesn't hurt and the breath is light and subtle, you think, now I've got it. Now it's right. Now I'm doing it. I understand how to meditate. I'm doing so well. Same pattern. Same pattern, you know. It's all about me. How am I doing? Is my breath getting better? Is my concentration getting better? Is my mindfulness getting better? It's all about me. I'm not saying these are bad. I'm just saying they're ubiquitous. (laughs) They are really the way we tend to look at ourselves and life. And they don't work. That's why we're here. So... What is the right information that informs our attitude, that informs our practice? The Buddha, as those of you who have practiced a lot before know, he distilled what do we need to know to begin to see through these habits, to be able to kind of step aside and watch them running but not be run by them. What's the information we need that helps us meet our life, meet experience, meet ourselves and one another in a different way, in a way that's more harmonious, in a way that allows for compassion and connectedness. So as you know, he distilled, and his first teaching, when he did finally, after his seven, even when he decided to teach, he still spent seven weeks hanging out, as I think Guy said, you know, hanging out in the bliss of Nibbana, you know? Okay, seven weeks. But then he spent 45 years teaching, you know. So when he finally stopped this and went to teach, his first teaching and the one that he repeated over and over and over, the really elegant distillation, you know, it's really brilliant, of what we need to know to understand was the Four Noble Truths, which I'm just going to say very, very kind of simply. The first truth being the word in Pali is dukkha, which I like to translate more as unreliability, unsatisfactory, meaning not that all life is suffering and only bad things happen. That is not what it means. But it means that stuff, does, stuff happens. I would put it that way. That when we're born into a body, there's going to be times that this body hurts. There's going, we're all either going to die young or experience sickness, old age, and disease. We're all going to experience really beautiful things, and then we're going to be separated from those things. We're all going to have to be united with things and people that we would much rather not be united with, you know? That there is a 
part of life is what you would call unsatisfactory, unreliable. We can't depend on it for happiness in any kind of lasting way. This seems obvious, right? It's not like he's proclaiming something we don't know. But in another way, in another way, how much of our mental energy, our psychic heart and mind energy, is spent in resisting this or blaming ourselves? We get sick. Something goes wrong. We lose our job. Someone, you know, makes a face at us and we think, oh, they don't like me. You know, I'm such a bad person. Whatever it is. How much of our mental energy is either blaming ourselves that we're not perfect, trying somehow to deny, to hide, to fix things. Really, really, when you explore deep in your own idea about what would freedom mean, what would happiness mean, what would peace mean, does it include that pain in your back? Does it mean that your migraines go away and never come back again? Does freedom include losing your job, you know? Does it mean getting divorced? Does it mean having your friends suddenly go into some kind of other life and you lose connection with them, you know what I mean? When I think of, without really being careful about it, but when I notice what am I thinking about as happiness, as ease, as freedom, as nibbana, it usually revolves around everything being really nice and pleasant and floating on a cloud and nothing bad's happening anymore. It's really deeply ingrained, this sense of, you know, this bad stuff, and I'm saying bad in quotation marks, this difficult stuff, isn't supposed to happen, you know? You're saying, no, it's just part of life. Another aspect is the fact, yes, beautiful things happen. There is pleasure. There is love. There's wonderful things. And it all changes. We can't keep anything constant. It's going to change. That's just another fact of life. So that's the first truth he calls dukkha. To be understood. The second is the cause of our, and this I would say suffering, the cause of our anguish, is not the fact of the first truth. That's just how life is. But that the cause of our anguish is the way our hearts and minds respond in the face of the difficult or losing what we love or having what's pleasant go away. It's not that that stuff happens, but it's the reactions, the habits of our hearts and minds in the face of this first truth that really cause us the dis-ease, the sense of real suffering, of anguish, of life not working. And that's, he, he uses as a shorthand craving, the fact of wanting things that we like to stay wanting things we don't like to go away, wanting to be something, to be other. But really, these reactions, these responses, are the habits that Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about, those three habits. Wanting what we like, not wanting, leading to aversion, what we don't like, and thinking everything 
everything is all about me and what's going to make me feel good. So that's really the cause of the dis-ease in the face of things not being the way we want them to be. And the third truth, the, the first two is just kind of stating how things seem to be. The third and fourth are that it doesn't have to be that way. The way it is, the second truth that we're in this anguish is simply because we misunderstand the way things are. It's not that we have to become a different person. It's simply that we can learn to perceive ourselves in the world more accurately. And when there's accurate perception, when we have the right information, even just in a moment, then the, um, the habits of mind, the clinging, the aversion, they stop making sense. Even just for a moment, they let go. And so with wise discernment, with a relaxed and really full presence, the clinging, for example, lets go. And there can be a moment. And just, it can just be momentary. You don't have to think about some end state that never changes and we're never going to get there. That's just an idea that doesn't really relate to anything. But we all experience over and over and over moments when the clinging, the aversion, just lets go. And it's possible to recognize the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of this mind and body of life. Use Guy's example last night when he talked about getting on the plane. Just a simple example like that. As long as he was wanting to be in that first class and disgruntled about not getting it, it's not like huge suffering, it's little. But the way the mind works is the same, whether it's this or something huge. He was in dis-ease, out of harmony, not happy, suffering. Not huge suffering, but definitely not happy. And you can imagine how something little like that, you could work yourself really into a snit, you know, of aversion and negativity. And then if you really are out of control, you mouth off at the, at the um, flight attendant. And, you know, it just can keep escalating, right? But as soon as that other guy said, oh, I'm quite happy here. You know, guy, this guy, <laughs> his mind was open enough. So, oh, yeah, right, this isn't so bad. In that moment, letting go of the wanting, letting go of the aversion, not as an act of will, because that's just more me wanting something, but just saying, oh, yeah, this is just what it is. What's the problem? In that moment, there is no problem. The situation doesn't have to change. The mind that's in wanting, in aversion, in reactivity, that's, oh, this doesn't make sense. It lets go. We're in peace and ease. Just as it is. This is really the cessation of clinging. In that moment, the cessation of suffering. Today, someone asked in in the questions, you know, Part of our practice seems, as, we, as Guy was talking about last night, really meeting the difficulties that arise in our mind, in our body, really meeting it with full, kind, non-judging attention, being there for it. We really learn from it. And on the other hand, there's the silence, the stillness, the peace in the room. How do these come together? 
And at times it really seems like, you know, we're struggling with a difficulty, then the difficulty's gone, we can appreciate the peace, really feel what peace feels like. Because at first, and not even at first, but often, the difficulty, the reaction of our mind, which is what the difficulty is, not what's happening, seems so real, so it so colors our perception. We know of no other way to be with it, that we can only recognize peace and ease when that re- reaction's gone. That's right. But what happens as we go on and on in practice is that the two come together. The thing that seems to be difficult, having to sit in you know, the steerage, or having your knee really killing you, or sitting here and having a really difficult memory come up with a lot of sadness, or, thing I have to get, or your, your mind's just in chatter, you think I have to get rid of that to appreciate the stillness, the ease, the peace. What happens with this third truth is that we start to begin to recognize through the simple knowing of what's happening, through shifting our interest from what's happening or the experience and what I think about it to just the simple knowing of whatever's happening. In that knowing, we're touching. Oh, pain is like this. Sadness is like this. Thinking is like this. None of it's a problem. None of it's a problem. And when the reactions of mind to whatever's happening really let go, just for a moment, oh, knee hurting, at ease. They come together. Natural peace and ease of mind and body doesn't mean the body never hurts. It doesn't mean we don't have difficult emotions. It doesn't mean that everything starts to be the way we want it to be. It means we realize more and more, hey, it's out of control. And the problem isn't that things aren't the way I want it to be. The problem is I want. Oh, this is how it is in this moment. It doesn't mean we can't move from how it is. We can respond appropriately. It doesn't mean a kind of passive giving up. But it means a waking up with full presence. Oh, this is this moment is like this. Total presence. A friend of mine calls it like the place of no problem. Just for a moment. That's a moment of cessation of clinging, what the Buddha called liberation of heart, of mind, through non-clinging. That's really the freedom. That's accessible here and now and always, just for a moment. It's not a state. And it's not some, you know, incredible, blissful experience. Oh, but notice as you go through the days here. They happen all the time and in our daily life too. But one of the lovely things about a retreat is we have more space. We have more time. The little things you can really notice. So notice when there's a moment of that natural peace and ease. It might be that we notice it early first when nothing particular is happening. You're just sitting and drinking a sip of tea and you're really present and it's just this. Ah. Our tendency can be to think, oh, it was the perfect cup of tea. If tomorrow at exactly the same time I make exactly the same tea, right? That's going to do it. And it'll take us, you know, the nine days to realize it wasn't about that. So let's short circuit that. (laughs) And when you notice that perfect moment of looking at the moon out there and the crystal air, instead of when you notice that peace, 
that ease, that cessation of suffering, that wakeful presence, instead of focusing the attention out there on what the experience is and what, just notice that freedom from clinging, that liberation through non-clinging. It's just kind of recognize what that peace and ease is like. And then we start to recognize that it's possible throughout all experience. Not every moment, God knows. I mean, that's, you know, a possibility. I'm not saying that's what it's going to be like. It certainly isn't like that for me. But you'll find it can be accessible when you're sitting there and the person next to you is snoring and you think you just want to, you know, <laughs> throttle them. Their snoring is ruining my, you know, all, and suddenly it's just, it's just hearing and there's no problem. Next minute, a problem. Moments like that are great because then you can see, wait a minute, it can't be the external experience that's the problem. It's the wanting it to be different. Wow, isn't that fascinating? It's not bad. It's not like we're bad because we want, but it's like fascinating. And it shows that also peace and ease is much more accessible than we might normally think. You don't have to get to some incredibly, you know, rarefied state. So just notice as you go through the days, the sitting, the walking, the eating, taking your shower, going to the bathroom, it doesn't matter what we're doing. And the fourth truth that the Buddha talked about is that there's a path. And of course there's a path because mostly we don't notice that the habits are operating. Mostly when there is these moments of peace and ease, rather than just seeing that it's the absence of wanting, the absence of believing in aversion, the absence of thinking it's all about me, we tend to focus outward, you know, like get back that perfect cup of tea. And so there's a path so that we can practice in all aspects of our life, seeing how these habits of mind keep us spinning in confusion, recognizing over and over, over and over, how when the habit just for a moment goes away, there's no problem. And that we can learn to shift really where we take refuge that we can shift what we trust. So basically, I would say the path, Ajahn Sumedho says this. He's a, an American who's been a, a monk in the Thai tradition for 30 years and really quite wise. I love doing retreats with him. And he said in a shorthand for the whole Eightfold Path, which is wise understanding, and which leads to how we, uh, our motivations, our attitudes, how we speak and act in the world, and how meditate and mindfulness and energy and concentration, but that a shorthand for all of that would be awareness. So that the whole Eightfold Path could be awareness. And Thich Nhat Hanh says a similar thing, mindfulness, same thing really. So, now I lost my train of thought. <laughs> anyway, there's that path, we can learn to shift our refuge. The reason these habits are so strong, the reason we tend not to recognize them is because we're really, we're believing them. We're trusting them. It's our refuge. So for example, when that lab lady 
slammed the door in our face. And the first thing that came up was a kind of annoyance at her in a sense, you know, kind of a sense of can't treat me like that, even though that wasn't the thought. That's sort of where the habit of taking refuge is, that aversion that the safe place is to answer it with aggression, with aversion, you know? That's the habit. When something really pleasant is dangled in front of us, the habit is, or when, or when you're in pain here, the deep habit that we believe is, if I can get rid of this pain, if I can go have something pleasant, I'm going to be happy. That's where we trust. That's where we place our refuge. And as long as we keep doing that, that's where we're going to stay. So in taking awareness as the path, it's shifting our interest, it's shifting our refuge from what's happening to trusting that we can simply be in the knowing of what's happening. And that's actually a place of freedom. Just in a moment. And it's, it's not hugely, doesn't take huge effort or huge energy. So, for example, right now, just humor me, feel your hands, whether they're touching each other, whether they're touching your knees. Can you just feel your hands? Right, just you notice the sensations. Is that pretty easy to do? Yeah, can you do that? doesn't take a lot of effort, does it? Not too hard. That's all. That's awareness. Just feeling those sensations. That's pretty accessible, isn't it? Not too esoteric. Now, to stay just on that level of the simplicity and to note, oh, they're just the sensations. Does the mind then go into, well, my hands are kind of warm, they're feeling kind of tight, maybe I shouldn't have them in this position, they're kind of tense, maybe I should change it, what's the matter? That's like we're off of just the simple awareness. Then you might notice, oh, that's thinking, and that's awareness again. So awareness, it's not, doesn't take a huge amount of effort or energy, but it takes a steadiness through the day. Our whole practice here is really that simple quality of awareness throughout the whole day. Just coming back, coming back, coming back. And while our tendency, when we give instructions in the sitting to feel the sensations of breath, in the walking to feel the sensations of feet, our tendency from our habits is to get into evaluating what are the sensations of breath like evaluating how clearly we're feeling the sensations when we're walking, getting really tense, trying to do it better, trying to feel them longer, trying to feel it more subtle. But none of that makes any difference. It's really, we're just setting ourselves a very simple task so that we can keep coming back to the awareness, the awareness, the awareness. And as Ajahn Sumedha says, the wonderful thing about awareness in terms of what we're aware of Awareness, he calls it the point that includes, can be aware of anything, everything. There's nothing that awareness can't be aware of. And, this is the other thing, awareness doesn't care what it's aware of. It's not like if your awareness feels a really refined, subtle breath, that's a better, cleaner, purer awareness than awareness of a rough, you know, tight breath. 
it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. It's about beginning to trust, to recognize, to take refuge in just that simple knowing, the sensations as your hands touch. That's all. We hear a sound. Just the awareness of hearing it. It's like so simple, so nothing. I mean, there's nothing to hold, there's nothing to point to, there's not a state you can name that we overlook it. But awareness is always available as long as we're conscious. So in a way, our practice is really to shift our interest and our evaluations from what's happening to the awareness itself moment after moment after moment. It's like a, a Tai Chi move, I like to think. So we're sitting here fighting with sleepiness. And it's, oh, sleepiness is like this. That's Ajahn Sumedho's language. Nothing else to do. Want to get rid of the sleep. Oh, sleepiness is like this. That's awareness. Trying to feel the breath and the mind's going off into past and future. It shouldn't be thinking. Oh, thinking is like this. You're off and your back's hurting. Oh, tightness is like this. Boredom is like this. I'm all caught up in thinking I should be doing something better is like this. I mean, there's really nothing that's outside of awareness. But we keep overlooking that and getting back involved again in these habits. They're just so deeply rutted in the way we view experience. You know how the Buddha describes our moment-to-moment experience in terms of the six sense experiences. That would be seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching physical experience, physical sensations, and mental. That's the sixth sense door, you know, so mental emotions, thoughts. And the way he describes experience, again, very, very uh, elegant and simple, so take any, any one moment, it's just those six sense experiences happening over and over and over, out of which we construct all kinds of fabulous stories and explanations. And so, there's, so take a physical sensation. Or take a sight. If there's an eye that works, right? It's, it's a working eye, and a form comes in front of it, and there's consciousness. When those three come together, he calls that contact. That's a moment of seeing, right? And every moment that there's a moment of contact, whether it's seeing or hearing or sensing, along with it, there's a a subtle mental experience of it being either pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant, neutral. This is fast, fleeting, happening every time there's contact, which is basically every moment, but we just mostly don't notice that too much. We're busy, it's happening a lot. And from that, When we're not really noticing, what's really common is that it's pleasant. So right away, that's where the, oh, yeah, right, more of that. You know, kind of a leaning into a wanting. Unpleasant, like that lady slamming the door in our face. Right away, there's like a pulling back. No, you know, not liking, which can go all the way to aversion, to murderous rage or fear. The wanting could just be a little like, oh, I want it. Or it can, you know, lead us into years of our life trying to get something. And then neither pleasant or unpleasant, we cannot notice it at all. We often get bored at this point. 
Or the other, and the other habit is, we think it's all about me. And this is really, I would say, at the bottom of all of it, the thing that we don't see. So pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. There's a reaction of mind, and that reaction of liking, of not liking, of being bored, we're completely entranced by that reaction. It's all about me. Notice this. I love noticing this. You have to have a sense of humor. It helps. It's all about me. At the same time, don't take it personally, that your mind makes everything about you. But notice it. It's, it's like you're sitting in the dining room, and somebody walks by at the far side, really slowly, looking really mindfully, and you notice that, and immediately they're better than me. Somebody drops a fork, you know, and right away you think, oh, glad that wasn't me. You know, somebody uh, is sitting next to you making a note. How can they do that? Don't they know it's bothering me? It can be anything. There can be just a bird song outside. And at first it's just a moment of hearing. And then, oh, I'm really having a peaceful moment enjoying this bird song. I'm really, you know, so peaceful. Or your back hurts. I'm not doing good. Your breath is heavy. I really can't meditate because I have such a heavy breath. I'm so stressed. I'm so, you know, self-involved. Or you start noticing how every thought's all about me, every second thought, and you think, well, I'm really a completely self-centered jerk, you know? Nobody else is having thoughts like this. I'll just tell you now, we all are. (laughs) We all are. It's just what happens. It isn't personal. That's what I mean by it isn't personal. But it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Sokni Rinpoche, who's a, quite, a, quite a fun and lively, humorous Tibetan teacher, he describes this, how we make this all about me, kind of the center of the universe. He says, the fascination with me, this felt sense of me here now, he calls it the original, the original measuring point for samsara or the cycle of suffering. And he says, he uses an example. He says in Tibet, when we're going to build a house, the way we, we measure out the foundation is we start from a place in the middle and we get like a long rope, sort of like a measuring tape. And from the point in the middle, we measure out to the end and all the way around until you have the footprint, you know, for the house. And he says, in that same way, everything is measured from that felt sense of me here now. That's how we measure everything that's going on. It's our biggest entrancement. So we get so entranced. I mean, it's a riot, but when we're so entranced in that way, that's what keeps us spinning in these habits of mind. It's all about me, and this is unpleasant, so we got to get rid of it. It's all about me, and this is pleasant, so we got to have more. And until we stop taking refuge in these habits and are willing to just experiment with taking refuge in the awareness itself, we're not going to see through it. But when we're willing to just stop a minute and say, oh, right, feeling like I'm so important is like this. Oh, no embarrassment that I dropped the fork is like this. You don't have to fix anything. It's just this step into, oh, 
awareness of it is like this. It's really very accessible. When we have this attitude, this willingness to just step into the awareness, not to evaluate everything that's happening by whether we like it or don't like it, it feels good, it doesn't feel good, what does it mean about me? Not to evaluate at all. Mindfulness, awareness is just this simple meeting of experience, whatever is happening, just as it is, relaxed, without a lot of story about it, not judging, just being here for this moment. And then this moment changes, being here for this moment, over and over and over. When we're able to do that, just willing to do that, our refuge begins to shift. We begin to see that there is really a possibility for a kind of ease and peace in relationship to this life, to ourselves, that we might not have expected, that we certainly didn't experience in our lives. And it doesn't mean that the situations of our life necessarily has to change. The Buddha, when he awoke, his awakening, it didn't change his world. It didn't mean that difficult stuff didn't happen. He lived a life where he had all kinds of suffering, the suffering of war, the suffering of illness, the suffering of friends dying, the suffering of relatives trying to kill him, trying to split the monks, trying to, you know, make him look bad so they could be, you know, organizational dukkha, power politics, monks and nuns, breaking all kinds of rules, causing all kinds of trouble, you know. All he wanted to do was go sit under the tree in the bliss of nibbana, but he had to deal with all of this because he chose to out of compassion for the world. His awakening didn't change that. He had headaches. He had backaches. His most beloved disciples died before him, you know. Yet he was the peaceful one. He said he was free, free from suffering, free from confusion. We don't have to have a different body or different um, circumstances in our life. It's really accessible to all of us, moment by moment. Don't you know, go look for some big blowout, everything's going to change, it's all going to be light and glitz and free from now on. Just setting yourself up. But notice these moments when we shift from... Um, being caught in our habits, seeing the world through these habits, to the potential for simple awareness. Oh, it's like this. Mindfulness, when we're mindful, any experience is a doorway to freedom. It doesn't matter what's happening. Without mindfulness, without, without the refuge in awareness, the most blissful, beatific experience just keeps us more feeding that sense of it's all about me. So this is our practice here, just to learn moment after moment that we can really trust awareness. We can really make it our home, our true home. So let's just sit quietly for a minute after the talk.
Thank you for your attention. And in the next sitting, which will be short, we'll also have a, a short chanting together in English. If you haven't picked that, did you announce it before? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.